The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, last week we looked at a very odd beginning to the final chapter of this saga that is Jonah's life. An entire city turns from their wickedness. An entire city turns from their oppressive power. And Jonah, instead of celebrating, he becomes angry. We read that in the beginning of chapter 4. And now what is Jonah doing? Jonah is tailgating. Okay? He goes to this city. He goes then back up to this hill. And he camps out. And he sits there at a front row ticket watching to see what is going to become of this city. Thinking maybe, is God going to destroy it? Because if he does, I want to be here to witness this. What is God going to do? And this anger from Jonah stems up what we learned last week. It stems up from a place of this. Jonah can't figure out how God's love and compassion work, works. He doesn't quite get it. He knows that God is boundless in love and everlasting in love and kindness, but he doesn't understand exactly how it's functioning. Nineveh was a horrible place. It laid waste to entire cities. They were enemies of God's people. They murdered children and committed genocide they're so bad by any measure, and now God is forgiving them. Now God is showing compassion on them. And Jonah's thinking, God, I don't understand you. I don't understand how you work. And I can understand how Jonah, where Jonah's coming from, can't you? I mean, I want to be honest with myself here and, and put myself in Jonah's shoes and say, Jonah kind of has a case here. He, he's coming from a place that I can understand. God says, should I not pity Nineveh? And this means to show compassion, to spare them, to forgive them. And when God uses this word in the Old Testament, often, almost all the time, he's talking about it in a way of like military power. He's talking about it of, as a military conquest. And through Genesis and Deuteronomy and Nehemiah and the prophets and, and like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament, God uses this word by saying, go into, this, go into the city of your enemy. I have handed them over to you. Do not show them pity. Do not show them compassion. Don't let your eye look upon them with pity for them. But go in and conquer them. I've given them over to you. And God even says to his very people, he says, because you've disobeyed me and disregarded my commands, I will not let my eye show pity to you. And I can, so I can understand where Jonah's coming from. He sees Nineveh as their enemies. And now God wants to show compassion. Now you want to show compassion for this people? You have trained us up as people to not show compassion towards our enemies, that you've handed them over to us, and now our worst of enemies, you're telling us that you're going to show compassion? God, I don't understand how you work. That's what Jonah is saying. I don't understand why you do the things that you do. Have you ever asked that question? I mean, have you ever said that to God before? God, I don't understand why you do what you do. And if we can sit there where Jonah's sitting right now and come to terms that we have a difficult time, you and me, we have a difficult time throughout the course of our life understanding exactly why God does what he does. If we can sit there where Jonah is, then we can get a lot out of this last bit of scripture. Many of our struggles are due to this inadequate understanding of how God's compassion and love works in our life. We are like Jonah, trying to figure out why God does what he does and being, at times, very confused by it. 
God is like a fire. The Bible even says that God is an all-consuming fire. You are drawn to its beauty. You're drawn to its warmth. You're drawn to its comfort. But if you don't understand its power and its consuming characteristics, it will be very dangerous for us. Fire is strange, isn't it? Think about the just properties of fire. It is comforting. It gives life. It also takes life. It is in the right hands. It can be very purifying and very effective and very helpful. And in the wrong hands, it can be devastating. It can, be, it can warm a home, but it also can remove imperfections from gold and silver and, and take out pollution and impurities in those metals. My almost two-year-old son is kind of at that point where he's figuring out heat, and he's figuring out how it works, and he's a little confused by it. He knows that heat can make his mac and cheese taste really yummy, but he knows that by touching the stove can also be very hurtful. And whenever we make him eggs, he holds it up to me to blow on because it's too hot to eat. And so I blow on the eggs, and now it's better. And now as it's warming up, we walk outside, and he blows into the air. (laughs) He does. Trying to cool it down. He's, He's figuring it out. He's figuring out that heat is something interesting. It's good, but it's also bad. And I don't understand. Sometimes it makes me cry, but sometimes it makes me happy. How does heat work? You know, this is like God. And, and, and Cohen, my son, is, is a child. And he's in his infancy. And so he doesn't understand exactly how it works. And Jonah is here in this position where he is also like a child, like an infant, not really understanding, God, how does your love work? How does your compassion work? I'm confused by it. And what God wants to teach us and Jonah is that His compassion is more freeing than Jonah can understand, that he is understanding. It's free because it reaches out to the worst of people, to the hopeless, to the wicked. It is extended to people that don't deserve it. And so God is saying, Jonah, my love, my compassion is so much more freeing than you understand. It reaches out to people that don't deserve it. But my love, my compassion, Jonah, is also more expensive than you understand. Because it is not simply me just feeling sorry for people and me loving people and me giving blessings to people and me letting people get away with the bad that they do. But it is suffering with others, Jonah. My compassion and my love is so expensive that it requires me to suffer along with people that suffer. And because God's love and compassion is so free, and expensive at the same time, God wants Jonah to know, if you want my compassion, if you want to understand who I am, it must comfort you, but it must also purify you. And this is where Jonah finds himself, and I believe that this is where we find ourselves so many times in our life. Do you want God's love? Do you want to know God? Do you want his compassion? Do you want his comfort? Do you want his kindness? Then you must know it will also be refining. It will be comforting. It will be loving. It will be kind. It will make you blessed. But it will also rattle you. It will also refine you. It will also dig in so deep into the core of who you are. And it will mess with you. 
God cannot give us warmth and life without refining us. And that's what fire does. And that's what God does. And that's what God wants to do with Jonah. And he doesn't quite yet understand it. He shows us through this this passage, God shows us that his love, his compassion is both warming and refining through the series of things that he appoints in Jonah's life in verse starting in verse 6. And I want you to notice a, a word as we walk through these just three verses together. The word is appointed. It says God appointed. And it's a word that is used three times with God and Jonah. And it means to direct, to ordain, to cause to come about. It's something that God is intentionally doing for Jonah. So look at this in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it, was, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God appointed a comfort from the heat with a shade for Jonah. And anyone who will soon experience the 110 degree weather, the 115 degree weather that's coming soon, you know how comforting shade can be. You know what it feels like to walk into your home that's been air-conditioned all day and to find comfort in that. And you know how oppressively miserable the heat can be when you're out there in the open, out there in the midst of it. And then God appoints a worm to eat this plant to cause it to wither. And then God appoints this scorching wind. Why does God do this? Is it true that God appoints trouble, discomforts, natural disasters as a means of purifying? As a means of his purifying love and compassion? Yes. And the reason for this is traced back, I mean, it's traced through all of God's word. And we find its beginning way back at the very beginning. We look at God's creation. We look back all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God's creation was perfect in its design, that he looked upon it and said, it is good that men and women were created, and they were good, and they were without sin, and without death, and without imperfection of any kind. And the entrance of sin comes into the world, and it creates this shattered relationship with God. It breeds disease and death and discomfort. And there's no more this this continuity of relationship between God's creation and him as a creator. They're kicked out of the garden in shame. You know the story. The earth is cursed. Their bodies begin to die. Cain kills his brother, the first murder. And everything, as one commentary so eloquently puts it, is a mess. Everything is a mess. The world that he created became a place of death of disease and violence. But the God who created, and what we see from Genesis 3 and going forward all throughout Scripture, even here, that the God who creates is also the God who restores, the God who redeems, the God who purifies. Evil and death, not a part of God's created design. But those things happen because we live here. They happen because we live in this world. 
God didn't create evil, but he monitors, as we see in this passage and many others throughout Scripture, that he monitors the flow of these things according to life, according to his appointment, according to his appointment and provision, like he does with Jonah. God's compassion works like this. His compassion, the meaning of his compassion, the the point of his compassion is to rescue, to redeem, to refine, to restore, to reclaim. If you've ever truly loved somebody, if you've ever truly loved somebody and that person was going through a horrible time in their life, let's say it's addiction or alcoholism, and they're going through this horrible pain, and you love them so much, you would take measures that are so uncomfortable for that person, so drastic, so devastating to their natural order of things, their natural pattern of their life, so that you could rescue them from themselves. You would do this for your child. You would do things that make your child uncomfortable, not intentionally, but you would do it to rescue them, to save them, to teach them, to express love and protection for them. If you're a kid here and your parents are doing things that are causing discomfort in your life, know that they are trying to love you as God loves you. They are wanting to rescue you from harm, from death, from disease. They are wanting to love you and show compassion to you. And this means that it will not only bless you and make you feel happy and make you feel like they are kind, but it will also refine you. It will also rescue you and restore you. If we want the warmth, we must also take the refining work of God. God desires to, like he does with Jonah, to, to wreck our vines. Not wreck our lives. I'm not here to say God desires for your life to be miserable. But God desires to wreck our vines, the things that we trust in in our life, that will ultimately fail us. It's possible that God is monitoring the flow of great discomfort in your life because he wants to wreck the things that you are trusting in for your ultimate happiness that will ultimately fail you i'll ask these questions again do you want to know god do you want to find confidence in god do you want to be the kind of person now think about this you're thinking about the kind of person you want to be and you're thinking to yourself i want to be a person who is confident in god's grace I want to be a person who knows God's presence. I want to be a person who increasingly grows in my life that tomorrow I know more about God than I did today. I want to be a person who loves my family and loves my children and does an honorable thing at work. I want to be a person who people come to for, for counsel because there's wisdom in me. Then you must let God draw you closer to himself. And it might get really uncomfortable if you do that. I wanted a hobby when I was in middle school. Something to generate a little extra income. To buy, all the clo- buy new clothes that my mother had ruined in the wash. And so I started a, a cockatiel breeding business in my bedroom. Cockatiels are like these little parrots. And they have these mohawks. Don't judge me. I, w- I was an entrepreneur, Okay. And so what I did was I got a mommy bird and a daddy bird and I got a cage and I built a nesting cage 
right off of the big main cage. It was like a wing of this main house, and I cut out some of the bars in the, in the cage so that they can go into the nest and come back out. And they would lay eggs, and they would sit on these eggs, and these eggs would hatch, and I would sell these birds for $40 a piece. Yeah, it was awesome. Had their wings clipped so they couldn't. I have pictures, and I didn't show any, and I'm not regretting that, me holding the birds. But, but there's something that happened that was very new to me, and I had to read up on it as I was, as I was doing this, because the birds would grow, and, and you probably know where I'm going with this. They would, they would grow, and they would stay in the nest, and then I would see the mother and the father would begin to peck at the bird. When they got to a certain age and their feathers started to grow out, the mother would actually, and the father would take their beak and, and pierce it into the skin of the baby, even to the point of shedding of blood. And they would pluck out their feathers and, and keep going at them until the baby would be forced out of the nest. And this is a very difficult sight to witness, where you're seeing this mother attacking her child. And you're thinking, why, are she, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this to her baby? She loves her baby. Because this baby needs to grow to be independent, to live on its own, to be strong, to not be tethered to the nest their entire life, but to gain a confidence to grow into who they were designed to be. And this may break your heart, as it did mine, Seeing this, but it was a necessary thing. It had to happen. And you know what? When we look at animals doing this, we know that they're not doing it for, because they're emotionally insecure. We know that they're not doing it because they were taught bad by bad parents. <laughs> they know, we know that they're doing it because this is the way that God designed them to live. And it is good. And it is uncomfortable. But it is right. You may be thinking, this is really strange. God is a God of love. I thought God wanted me to be comfortable. I thought God wanting me, wanted me to be happy. God wouldn't allow pain. He wouldn't allow suffering. He wouldn't allow me to sit in ashes of my life and to be plucked out by the world's circumstances. He wouldn't let danger come my way. And if you think that, in part like what Jonah is thinking, then you are in a, in a state of spiritual infancy and there is so much more about God that he wants you to know about him and spiritual infancy and being a child in our growth in Christ can look like this it can it can be drawn to two different extremes one is we become a cynic when we are spiritually immature and not growing in God's love and compassion we become a cynic you know what a cynic does we just we look at our life and we say everything is horrible I don't know why I got my hopes up in the first place. I don't know why God's doing this. But you know what? I just don't care anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. Let God do his own thing. I'm just going to maintain. That's a cynic. That's what a cynic does. And another extreme is, is someone who's a romantic, a spiritual romantic. And they say, what's happening to my life? I thought that God loved me. I thought that he cared for me. Why is this happening? What's happening to our country? It's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm moving to Canada. God, why would you let bad things happen to me? That's a romantic, where we see that everything should be rainbow and good, and when things are hard, we don't know what to do. And then there's the Christian. Then there's the mature Christian who thinks of it in a different way. 
The mature Christian does not deny their pain. The Christian knows their pain. They know their suffering. They don't deny or hate their pain. But they say, my heavenly Father is appointing and providing all of my circumstances, and I'm going to find out what he's trying to teach me in this. I don't know what it is. And I hate it. And it's hurting. And I, I need to seek God. How do we do this? Because that is very easy. It's, it's good to talk about these things and say, this is what God does. He refines us. He comforts us. But how do we do that? And that's really the question that we need to leave, live, leave with today is, is answering, how do we get to that place to grow like God wants Jonah to grow? And the answer is something that is very simple but very real. And it's the answer to many questions. And the answer is, we need to go to Jesus. We need to look at Christ. We need to pursue him. We need to be on this head-on collision to knowing who he is because it's in Christ that we find the answer to how does God's love, compassion, justice, and refining work all come into one in a way that it loves us and blesses us and is good for us. Jesus was able to show on the cross his love for sinners and his hatred of sin all at the same time. He was able to show his work of compassion, of comfort, of rescuing, and also his work of refining. When Jesus died on the cross, we see, we see the most wonderful example of God's compassion on display. In all the history, in all the history of the world has ever seen. And the people watching the crucifixion and watching Jesus die who claimed to be the Son of God, come to save his people. And now they see him dying on the cross. They didn't understand what was going on. Most of the people there thought what? What do you think that they thought? Do you think that the people seeing Jesus dying on the cross thought, don't worry, God is in control. Don't worry, this is all part of his plan. He's going to make good of this. No, they didn't think that at all. They thought, how is this happening? God, what have you done? I thought that you came to rescue us, and now you're dying? That's what they thought. They even hid. The disciples went and went in hiding because they were afraid for their lives. What do we learn at the cross? That Jesus suffers with and for his people that he is well acquainted with pain, that Jesus is in control, that he has life and all of life and all of creation in his hands. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I desire for you to understand at the core of your being my transforming work. I want that so bad that I am going to destroy your vines I'm going to eat away at the things that you are trusting in above me. And you know, our vines, let's talk about that just really briefly. Our vines are more than just these inconveniences in life. They're more than just these, these petty things that we trust in that, that can go bad. You've probably heard, you know, first world problems, you know, these problems that we all have. Like some of these, I tried spreading cold butter on my toast and the bread ripped. 
You know, this is not a vine, okay? These are not things that, like, ultimately make us happy. I'm visiting with my in-laws, and they don't know their password, their Wi-Fi password. <laughs> the channel I switch to during a commercial is also showing a commercial. You know, these are, like, really problems that we go through, right? I want food from the back of the fridge, but it's blocked by the food in front of the fridge. So it's, <laughs> these are our problems. These are our problems. See, those are funny problems, but come on, there are problems. There are things that you are resting in and hoping in and that bring you comfort that are not funny. What are those things? Is it some relationship? Is, some, is, it, is it you being a parent? You being a spouse? You being a certain kind of worker? What are these things that you say, here is where I find comfort? Here's where I put my identity and rest. And if it's not Jesus, then it's a vine that God wants to destroy. It's scary. But it's so good of him to do that. Because those things will fail us. They will leave us. They will leave us disappointed. And it is God's compassion that he would say, come to me, find rest in me, treasure me above all things. Jonah makes himself a little tent. And it's insufficient to bring lasting comfort. Comfort only comes comes from what God provides in himself. And there's this truth here. There is this biblical, scriptural truth that we need to leave with. That the lasting desire, the lasting rest and comfort that we desire can only come from Christ. And if we seek it in any other place, we will search in vain. We will be on this endless search, this endless goose chase, to find the things that satisfy us and we will not be satisfied. So here is where we close. We are given this unique opportunity. And I want to close up this entire series, this entire book of Jonah with this. You and I are given this unique opportunity to be Jonah's pastor for a moment. What advice would you give Jonah? Knowing this whole book, you've walked through this, what, do you, what would you say to Jonah in this, in this situation? You've looked at his, this man's life. You've seen the things that he doesn't see. You see the things that God is doing behind the curtain, and now what are you going to say? I hope that all of us would go to Jonah, we would put our hand on his shoulder, and we say, Jonah, don't you see what God is doing? There are things that are being repeated in your life over and over again, Jonah. He directed the boat, he directed the waves, he directed the fish to swallow you, he directed the plant, he directed the worm, he directed the wind, and all are intended, Jonah, to draw you back to God, back to fellowship with God, to know him as he truly is. And even now you miss it. What a strange book. What a strange ending to this book. You know why it ends this way? You know why we don't have Jonah answering this question and the conclusion is just not there? It just ends abruptly? Because you're Jonah. And I'm Jonah. And all of us need to answer the question that God asks to Jonah. Are you going to fit me into your life where it's convenient? Or are you going to be on this head-on collision to knowing my compassion, knowing my love, abandoning your vines, repenting of your idols, and trusting in me. Are you going to do this? Jonah, are you going to trust in me no matter what? You're Jonah, and I'm Jonah. We need to ask that question. And when we believe this, we will be able to see that all that we encounter, everything that we go through in life, no matter how difficult and uncomfortable it is, 
is an opportunity for God to open our eyes to his steadfast love and to draw us closer to him. We will see God's heart of compassion when we do that. Refining like fire is difficult. It's warming, it's comforting, it's also difficult. And God feels the pain of his people. Let's pray to him. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.